I'm glad I wasn't the only idiot in the room this time. No, <laughs> definitely, definitely not for sure. You could restore it all and rescue me from You had my fallen You How Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me the closest thing I have to a doctor, Persona Maliandi. How's it going, Persona? Never take my medical advice. That's all I got to say. <laughs> but you've, you've come in so handy this weekend during my, we'll call it my incident. Yeah, I, I think we should talk about your little incident. Are you feeling better, by the way? First I, well, uh, so first, we'll we'll fill the audience in. I managed I managed to break the bone in my body which is apparently the most broken bone in most frequently broken bone in the body which is my nose. I managed to break Oof. my nose this weekend. And then I that's when I found out that it's actually the most frequent it mostly it's mostly broken due to uh sports injuries. But most yeah. people probably don't even realize that their nose is broken, right? It just feels like a nose is not something you would really notice versus like a finger if you broke your finger. Yeah, no, it's not. Yeah, it's not going to, it doesn't limit any motion, right? It's, it just, in my case, bleeds like, like a stuck oh. pig and, and caused immense amount of, I didn't pass out or anything, but I did walk. Basically, I walked straight into a horizontal two by six. Oof. And is, and is it feeling better now? It feels, well, you know, pain meds are a beautiful thing. What, what's the phrase? Uh, better living through chemistry. <laughs> um, yeah uh I'm, I'm trying to keep the pain meds to a minimum because I, you know i don't want to go on that list um and you know it's a serious problem and so they, they've given me pretty mild uh stuff it's the uh, tramadol um which i think is in the codeine area uh anyway um and but this will um, be an interesting podcast then it, <laughs> it should be great and uh We'll bring on another person who um, knows a lot more about a very different kind of medical system since he is apparently an import. Um, <laughs> he's, he's from the north. He's from, you know, the Minnesota. The, yeah. Yeah. Minnesota. <laughs> so, OK, here's the trivia question. All right. I, well, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask my my guests the trivia question once we bring him on. Uh, he's been in the industry as long as I have. He's been in and out of uh, the storage industry and, um, you know, the compute industry. And and he is now the founder and CEO of Chainkit. Welcome to the podcast, Val Berkovici. It is great to be here from the great white north. Yes, I'm in Canada. <laughs> I like to tell people I, I'm trans-border. I, I work and live on both sides of the border. Let, you know, not, not quite as fluidly as the pre-COVID, but still. I, I didn't realize that you that you did that. You, you just went, you go back and forth? Yeah, no, the chain kit and I, uh, I'm based ordinarily out of California, out of Silicon Valley, the, the East Bay, Livermore, California. But at the moment, I happen to be in Canada taking care of mom. Oh, mm. well, good for you. Good for you. And so, so here's the trivia question, which, you know, we've kind of already given away the answer, but I, I, I asked the average American this question and they have no idea. <clears throat> if you are in Detroit and you head south, what is the first foreign country that you encounter? Okay. The way you're talking about the geography there in the bridge, Windsor, Ontario. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I've been, and by the way, I had to go to Windsor, Ontario, which, you know, is basically the only thing I know about is I had a bunch of casinos. There's things we can talk about that are popular there too, but that's beyond oh, the scope of the right. conversation. Probably beyond the scope of the podcast. But yeah, and that's actually, I remember putting on an event there. I, I didn't put on an event. I was just the invited speaker. And the the people that were running the event, this was just before I was going to start Truth and IT, that was we were going to put on, you know, this this was what we were going to do for a living. And I mentioned to the two uh, women that were like sort of the people making the event happen. And I said, you know, I, I'm about to um, start my own company to do just this. And they looked at me and they said, why in the world would you do that? <laughs> this is this is the hardest thing ever. And I, yeah, they were right. It took me a few years to figure that out, but yeah. As a startup leader now, I can completely vouch for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Val, uh, we're going to have you on uh, twice uh, because I think that the topic, you know, your company and, and, and what it does is super interesting at the same time when I start to think about what your company and, and how it how it works and what it does, the first thing that I think the average person who hasn't spent the amount of time that you have in that world, they're immediately going to run into not understanding some of the core technologies that are undergirding your company. And so I want to throw out a couple of words. Um, and, and, and one of them, of course, is the, is the B word, blockchain. Uh, and then also the part, as I understand it, the part of blockchain or the, or I guess that'd be the right, the part of blockchain that you're actually using, which is the distributed ledger. Does that, does those seem like? Yeah, those are two important words and they have a very elegant relationship. Distributed ledgers are a subset of blockchain. Okay. So at least I got, I got that part okay. right. Now what can I can I add ahead. one thing? Yeah, uh, you I know think- what? Before you before you do that, Prasanna, uh, I'm gonna throw out our disclaimer. Prasanna and I do both work for Druva. This is not a Druva podcast. The opinions that you hear are all Prasanna's. Go ahead, Prasanna. Yes, they're all mine. They're amazing <laughs> ideas. Don't mine, steal them. Mine. Mine. <laughs> so before we get to talking specific specifically about blockchain yeah. and distributed ledgers, could you also because I know everyone associates blockchain with Bitcoin, that might be a good general starting point before yes. we dive into so isn't blockchain, blockchain bitcoin isn't that the same thing they both start with the b yeah both of us by the way val just just bear with it both of us are going to ask some really dumb questions some of which we know the answer to <laughs> <laughs> i i love stupid questions because that means we're talking to a nice wide broad hopefully large audience so right yeah, let's bring them all on so yeah so blockchain isn't that like bitcoin like isn't that the same thing you know, for lay people, you can just say yes. For our audience here, which I'm assuming could be a dangerous thing, is a bit more technical, wants to dig a bit deeper, then uh, Bitcoin is merely an instance, a network, you know, uh, of, a, of a, a blockchain technology concept. So, Is there, it like is, an application of blockchain? Yeah, it's a very specific and uh, probably easily by far the most famous application of blockchain. What Was it, did it, are they... Did they come out one and the same at the same time or did blockchain come out and then Bitcoin, did they make blockchain for Bitcoin? That's a good question. So I think to answer it simply, they came out at the same time. There's a a lot of, you know, there's a lot of advanced math involved here. So many mathematicians and some early tech pioneers had worked on digital currency before Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. 
but you've probably heard the name Satoshi Nakamoto, and it was a paper, a pseudonym really, most people suspect, of a number of mathematicians that got together and published this really awesome paper about a dozen years ago describing this application of distributed ledgers as a blockchain using some specific protocols and specific incentives to actually you know, create this network that ultimately now has become uh, considered a you know a somewhat viable what is it uh, store um, you know just a, a, a viable asset you know right. a financial asset a store of value where it could be an alternative to gold or some other things. Is it is it an alternative to GameStop stock? <laughs> uh, if you want to be very speculative, I actually think there's a very tight correlation between what's happened last week with GameStop and some of the other market manipulation, if you will. And it's only because the 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 liquidity the, and the low friction and particularly the high volume trading that we saw in GameStop. And then we saw a whole bunch of circuit breakers, you know, some political, some technical, some market circuit breakers. Those were all concepts that were dealt with up front within the, the Bitcoin white paper. Mm-hmm. And the promise of Bitcoin is much more fluid, liquid, low cost transactions at any volume or scale to be able to you know exchange value basically whether it's just paying for a good or service or whether it's transferring assets but this is all from like nothing right it kind of <laughs> gets created <laughs> so let's step because there's a lot of concepts we're intertwining here and it's easy nowadays when you read so many articles that you know use these terms fungibly it's easy to get confused so i think we need to do the the, the, the rational thing which is divide and conquer this complex topic to understand it better. Yeah, and I I completely agree, Val, and 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 I think that the that the what is Bitcoin and from whence does it derive value is totally irrelevant to this conversation. What I think is is really important is for the average person to understand this technology that undergirds it, which is blockchain. And, you know, what, what is that? And then should we, do you think, so I, and I know the distributed ledger is part of that. Should we do distributed ledger first or blockchain first? What I, do you think? I prefer we start at the simplest concept first and then build okay. upon that. Okay. Sounds so good. The simplest concept so what's is. What's a bit? <laughs> exactly. I think we can all start maybe at the level of a single tab or single page spreadsheet. That's a pretty good frame of reference for our audience here. Most people today understand that. I think even kids in high school. So, as you know, a spreadsheet is a simple table representation of a ledger. You know, most of your audience knows what a ledger is. Yep. And the simplest way to think of a distributed ledger is just that, copies of that spreadsheet. So let's say we make a dozen copies or 100 copies, pick an arbitrary round number. That's fundamentally at its simplest level what a distributed ledger is. It's a copy of that spread or multiple copies of that spreadsheet. And where the conversation begins to, you know, become non-trivial and begins to become interesting is which version of that spreadsheet is the correct one across those maybe dozen or hundred copies. And the question, you know, isn't to have a debate about it. The question is to codify that so that can be answered automatically. And that's where you begin to really look at the, what is known today as a distributed ledger technology. Okay. And why are these ledgers important? They're important because 
you know, of, of some of the obvious kind of adversarial mentality is if you want to commit fraud, the easiest thing is to find someone that uses a single copy of a ledger and then figure out a way to tamper with it silently with impunity, which happens every day, by the way, inside a lot of organizations, public and private sector. And then now you've committed fraud. You've basically overwritten an entry in a ledger. You're the only one that knows that you, that you did that. And therefore, you can make a transaction disappear. You can make a transaction appear to be twice as valuable in your favor. There's all sorts of reasons why you want to decentralize and distribute ledgers. And it's around the integrity. It's around the security of the information, the, the data, particularly if it's financial data, of the ledger. Gotcha. So I watch a lot of TV shows and usually crooks, when they're committing fraud, they'll have two sets of books. Right. One that they show externally and one that they keep internally that keeps track of everything. So in order to prevent fraud, right, that's kind of what the ledger. That's one of the things that it's trying to help solve. Right? Yeah, we've, heard of, you know, we've heard of single source of truth in the past as being a convenience for financial reporting. In this case, it's literally a way to objectively verify the integrity of something that you know, multiple parties care about in a transaction. That's interesting. It's literally the opposite of the concept of like record of authority, right? Um, you're, you're, you're sort of ceding authority to a group rather than saying this one ledger has the answer. Correct. And in this case, it's really ceding authority to a network of nodes. That's what a, a distributed ledger in our context is. It's effectively that, collect, that collective, that network of nodes that have figured out a protocol to agree on what is the authoritative you know, version of every transaction. Okay, so so this gets to one of the things I've never quite understood, and that is who's running these nodes and why would they do that? So traditionally, a bank runs these nodes, right? It's traditionally we cede authority to a centralized authority like a bank or some other organization that manages that ledger for us, and we put a level right. of trust there. And there's typically a level of government oversight, you know, regulatory compliance and so forth that attests to that. Decentralized ledgers and the GameStop analogy is very appropriate here is all about taking control away from a centralized authority that could censor the information, could alter the information. You know, there's lots of screenshots that were posted last week of, of Robin Hood actively selling without permission some of these positions, these GameStop holdings or, or options contracts that their customers had in order to cover Robin Hood's own liquidity problems. So there's a lot of problems when you start to cede authority and control of an asset that you you own, quote unquote, to a third party. And the incentive around that, you know, very canonical white paper by the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto was to create a codified protocol that's completely autonomous that lets you establish some basic rules of engagement in terms of having a collective, having members of this distributed ledger as nodes or so forth, have a, a programmatic way to agree on what is a legitimate transaction, but not have any one person have the ability to override that or any one central authority have the ability to override that. So truly, if you will, very democratic, very crowdsourced oriented way to transact. But I don't think you answered the question that I was asking. The The, the question that you answered was, why would people do this in general? Why would they use a distributed ledger or why they would participate in a distributed ledger? What I'm asking is why would Curtis Preston, who has a server, 
volunteer the power and cooling and cost of that server to participate in a given distributed ledger. That's what I'm trying to understand. Okay, so now we're combining a couple of concepts. So now that we basically understand what a distributed ledger is, that's a great follow-up question. Why? You know, why would I participate in a distributed ledger? And so the answer is twofold. I think the answer that you're asking about, you know, from a layperson perspective is why would I want to operate a node on a public ledger such as Bitcoin? And the reality is that there has to be an incentive for this Bitcoin network and all the nodes that participate. There has to be a, an incentive, financial or otherwise, for you to contribute your CPU power, GPU power, ASIC power nowadays, uh, but not just the silicon, but particularly the energy costs required. You know, what's your incentive to do that? And that's where... You, you get financial rewards, which we'll dig into a little bit, but the value you deliver in return is a quality of service in terms of contributing to the integrity of the network, the trust of the network, and making sure that you know, the particular transactions or the value of, of an associated token like Bitcoin is what it is, but also the quality of service in terms of performance, right? These transactions can't take days to be verified because that's what the SWIFT network does today for financial transfers, and that's considered the legacy competition here. So the incentive is to get rewarded for delivering a level of integrity and a quality of service around that integrity. And because this is the entire... Or, go ahead, Curtis. No, uh, no, go ahead. I was going to ask, and this is what really drives people wanting to use a platform, correct? Yeah, it's, it's it, essentially uh, it's a it, pretty understandable concept. You want to pay the lowest transaction fee and in return, get the highest quality transaction in terms of knowing that it's tamper evident or tamper free at the at the quickest you know latency. So Fast. okay, so people that put records into a distributed ledger pay a transaction fee. There's a transaction fee for the applications that use a distributed ledger, and then the distributed ledger itself maintains integrity. Uh, and Bitcoin, this is part of the genius of, of the Bitcoin white paper, was a lot of the open source intellectual property shared around these algorithms, often known as mining. So what's the incentive to have people contribute not just all of the silicon, which has a capex, but over time, much more, much more significantly, the opex of the power and cooling to you know, operate these networks? And so it's, this is a very controversial and misunderstood right thing, both technically and politically and ecologically, but the mining incentive in the Bitcoin network, and every public ledger is different, Ethereum is different, and you've heard of Ripple and Monero and Dogecoin, stuff like that. They're all quite different. But um, fundamentally, the, the, the incentives are all around how do you know, the Bitcoin authors decided that scarcity, digital scarcity was going to be a huge part of the incentive because it would essentially have theoretically a compound value over time, meaning that as more and more people contributed to the integrity of transactions on this network, the, the actual asset they get in return that's tokenized by the crypto token, the Bitcoin crypto token, in, increases in value over time because it increased scarcity over time. So scarcity for the Bitcoin network in particular has proven to be a very attractive model. And the implementation of that certainly um, 
is understood technically, but misunderstood operationally. So it's not like the government where they'll just go print more money if they need to. That's exactly Bitcoin, it. There is- the concept here is it's very libertarian in many ways, which is we don't trust anyone, banks or the government, and uh, we don't trust monetary policy. I think that's called out directly in this you know, 12-year-old paper. And the only way to effectively you know, build value in an asset over time, even if it happens to be a virtual digital asset, as in this case, is to mathematically guarantee scarcity. Even gold doesn't do that. <laughs> hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. Is this the only thing that we know of that follows this sort of model? It's very interesting now that you talk about driving based on scarcity. Is there other things? Uh, are there other of... types of ledgers yeah. or are there other... No, like uh, other examples. Like is Because we said money and gold are not good at yeah. uh, analogies, right? Uh, gee, I don't, I don't know if there's anything. I mean, nothing comes close to being as mathematically pure as this, right? We can try and find rarer metals, you know, rarer minerals and so forth, rarer elements. But uh, in terms of actually, you know, making, tokenizing them, making them tradable with low friction at high volume and low overhead and so forth and making them very liquid, the Bitcoin network is, is definitely one of the most interesting, uh, you know, ask financial assets now that's out there. Okay, so <clears throat> let me see if I can if I can sort of distill what I believe I've heard. So a bunch of people, right, are operating servers, nodes, uh, that upon which <clears throat> are stored this distributed ledger. And the reason that they do and and the process of doing that for some reason, is referred to as mining. That is one part I've never quite understood it's why. It's one it of the incentives, yeah. It's the, the, yeah, the incentive. Particularly for the style of blockchain that is Bitcoin. Right. Um, and so and, and, and so basically, I, I guess that does help explain, because it, it does explain, you know, number one answer, the reason why you would participate, participate in such a network and surrender your computing power and and power and cooling and all of that is that you will be financially compensated via some mechanism in this case, Bitcoin. Um, and so then the, and, and, and I'm, I'm assuming I'm sort of, uh, inferring from that, that the process of putting an entry into, um, this distributed ledger has a cost which in the case of Bitcoin, I'm paying in a certain amount of Bitcoin. Is that? Yeah, you can pay for it in many ways, but one of the simplest ways is whatever asset you have, convert it to Bitcoin and then, yeah, pay a fee, you know, to, uh, to pro- a very nominal fee. Uh, the actual... Right, it's like fractional. Bitcoin. It's like super decimal points of Bitcoin. Yeah, the, they have a name. So, you know, the cents to the Bitcoin dollar, if you will, are called Satoshis. Oh, really? So you, yeah. So you can pay a very nominal fraction or amount of Satoshis to process a transaction on the Bitcoin network. And the reason you do that is because the overall you know, macro capitalization of the Bitcoin network is very, very high. It's hundreds upon hundreds of billions of dollars. I believe it's on the order of $600 billion as we record this today. And therefore, the level of confidence in that distributed ledger public network is extremely high. 
And things that are stored in the distributed ledger that is used by blockchain are all kinds of things, not anything, many of which not having anything to do with Bitcoin. Yeah, we are a perfect example of that. So we are not a blockchain company. We're an application of distributed ledgers and they can be public or private. You know, public would be Bitcoin would be one example. And we only store hashes of enterprise data, typically enterprise log data, so that we can help our customers make sure that when they're analyzing their security logs, they're not analyzing a tampered copy their adversaries would prefer they look at. Is part of this because the ledger has a size limitation on what can be put into it? So the technology gets quite sophisticated here, and, and that is that there's a continuous trade-off you have to make. This is you know a, a familiar engineering trade-off between decentralized protocols and centralized protocols, because on the one end of the polar end of the spectrum, fully decentralized protocols have the highest integrity, most difficult for you know compromising one account and tampering with them but the slowest performance and sometimes the highest cost. Whereas a centralized protocol would be just a locking protocol in an Oracle database today. You can optimize that for incredibly high transaction throughputs uh, and low, low latency, but you compromise one DBA credential and you don't, can't necessarily trust the integrity of those transactions. So you have to find a happy medium. And the whole concept of distributed ledgers underneath blockchains is it give you an option now to, to strike the right balance for your application, your requirements between decentralized integrity and centralized performance and efficiency. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Because I've always heard at least that you, for instance, wouldn't want to store like full files or other aspects inside a ledger, right? A ledger is intended for more uh, valid or guaranteeing the integrity of whatever the original object was. You don't necessarily store the entire object itself. Yeah, I mean, we can even use, uh, you know, database concepts, your traditional database concepts. So we're probably all familiar with, with blobs, binary large objects. There was a time when you didn't want to store those inside a database because it was a lot slower than a file system. But now with improvements in technology, with object stores, with databases, with file systems, there's not a really big dis, you know, debate about whether you put them in or out of, out of a database. It's kind of an implementation decision. Uh, but we do have, kind of have to go back in history here when we have that ledger, distributed ledger, I should say, or blockchain discussion, because it's unequivocally slower to store a lot of data inside that blockchain or distributed ledger, fundamentally because you have to distribute it. So it's okay to have one, you know, one terabyte you know, file inside one node of a distributed ledger, no big deal. Inside 100 nodes, well, there's propagation latency. Inside 10,000 nodes, like the Ethereum network, there's a lot of propagation latency. So that's where the trade-off of how much data or maybe how little data, how much metadata you want to store in a blockchain to get the integrity value. But, you know, keep it simple, stupid rule is still applies. If a database is really good at performance and really good at, at low latency and efficiency and, uh, and transaction costs, let's keep using it for that. And let's surround it with the integrity of a distributed ledger just for the critical metadata like a hash to validate the integrity of those transactions. No, that that totally makes sense. Yeah, especially when you're talking about thousands and thousands of nodes and trying to do updates across everything and all the rest. I, uh, I've totally heard that. I've heard of some people talking about. I mean, just barely talking, but I I had heard some people talking about using a distributed ledger like for backup, like for the ultimate sort of 
you know, in, um, backup integrity system. Like I'm going to put my backup into blockchain. That was, that was, people were saying that, but it doesn't sound like that would make any sense at all. So academically, the concept is completely sound. What you'll find is the implementation will either fail if it does that literally, or will gravitate towards that, that specific implementation where you don't need to put the entire backup in a blockchain. You just need to take hashes of whatever granularity of the backup you care about at the file or byte or record level or whatever, and put that on a blockchain and you get effectively the same benefit. Interesting. And I wonder if that's what they were talking about. I don't know. You know, I, I never had any detailed conversations. Yeah, I'm, I'm highly confident that as you dig into the implementation, particularly of anything that's actually working at enterprise scale today, it would have to be that. You know, there's just right. no way today to propagate terabytes instantly, <laughs> but there's certainly right. a way to propagate a hash of a terabyte. Almost and, to, and to use, because you've kind of, implied some database or you've actually used some database terminology would would these distributed ledgers would they fall into the eventually consistent model or immediately consistent model or somewhere in between they again it's a spectrum so academically they would be instantly consistent but operationally they're eventually consistent and we actually like a term inside chain kit we use called eventual consensus, because one of the things we haven't discussed that's an important technical implementation detail is the consensus protocol used across all these nodes to actually validate the integrity of the ledger. We, we have to assume, in fact, it's a, it's a millisecond to millisecond reality that any one of these ledgers, particularly when they're public ledgers, is under constant attack, because there's a lot of incentive to control a $600 billion asset and, right. and, and be able to literally liquidate that in your favor as opposed to somebody else's. So the integrity, the group or, or um, aggregate integrity of the network is paramount. And the way that's actually accomplished is through something called a consensus protocol. And, it, you know, the, the layperson example is in a spy versus spy movie or TV show, you basically agree upon code words, right, for two spies that have never met each other. They're each informed, you know, by their superiors of this pre-agreed code word or passphrase. And then, you know, when they meet each other, you know, the moon flies low over the horizon and some other clever retort comes back. And that's how these spies that have never met kind of know each other. Mm -hmm. And the, the distributed ledger blockchain community prefers a different example that's historical. It's called the, the Byzantine generals problem. But it's basically not just two parties, but multiple parties trying to reach that level of consensus. And the problem historically was if you lay siege to a large enough town or a city, it has multiple walls. And if you want to come at it from multiple, you know, a pincer movement from three or four areas, you've got to coordinate with other generals in your army you can't see, that you can't directly talk to. So maybe use a carrier pigeon, maybe you actually send a spy through the city, and that spy or that pigeon can be intercepted. And, uh, and the question is by the time that spy or that pigeon ends up on the other side of the city, how do you know? that the commands to attack or withdraw is authentic. And so the Byzantine generals develop a protocol for that using probably a very primitive form of encryption and, uh, you know, pre-enigma machine, so to speak. And that's fundamentally the protocol that's codified here uh, in public ledgers such as Bitcoin and others. I'm trying to process all of this. Like, I mean, I, 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 I've been really on the outside of this. I, I I've, 
I, I've been wondering about it. I'm curious about it, but it's like I had other thing, other problems to solve. So, so I had, yeah. I, this is definitely a, a major advancement of technology that has passed me by. Um, so I'm trying to understand. Let's see. So we we answered the question of like why somebody would why somebody would actually you know, volunteer, they're not volunteering, they're being paid uh, to participate in this ledger. A given entry in a distributed ledger, how many nodes is that entry going to be stored in? That is a great question. That's one of my favorite questions. So the, the one of the things that not a lot of people talk about until you start to actually implement these things is the governance model, which defines precisely that. It defines what level of decentralization you need to reach the level of consensus you want to trust. So one node, you know, high performance, pretty low confidence in the integrity of that because it's fairly trivial to tamper with one node's worth of data. And um, there's a lot of mathematical formulas, but practically, you know, four nodes, 10 nodes starts to get interesting, particularly if they're all controlled by different individuals. So that if you compromise one of their identities, you don't compromise the others. And um, there's actually... You know, there's a, there's, a, I think, a formula that 32 nodes mathematically in a consensus protocol uh, is kind of the the height of integrity. You know, any any further nodes that are uh, on a network that are controlled by independent entities at diminishing returns. But the challenge is, again, organizationally, it's hard if you work at a company to have not just 32 active directory forests, but ideally 32 separate active directories to establish that high level of independence between you know, ownership of nodes. So operationally, that's kind of a challenge for organizations. And the sad reality is the way the incentives work for actually uh, you know, putting up these mining farms, these crypto mining farms that you've read about probably that consume quite a bit of energy the way that works is economies of scale tend to dominate. So in a 10,000 node, you know, uh, Ethereum public ledger blockchain, it isn't 10,000 individuals, each running a particular server in their basements. The economics of that actually don't work and don't scale. It's, you know, less than 10, you know, sometimes five or 10, you know, global corporations or global organizations that own mining farms across multiple, you know, low power cost locations in the globe. And they're the ones now that are churning through all these mathematical puzzles and formulas and doing the crypto mining and validating the transactions on those operational networks. So the so economics of this are pretty advanced economics. The technology so how- behind this, as you said, is pretty advanced technology. And uh, it, all, it all comes together in, in what we tend to read about every day. And the one thing I want to make sure people can separate mentally in their minds is that the integrity of these pretty high profile blockchain networks, you know, these public distributed ledgers, the integrity of Bitcoin or Ethereum is, is almost never in doubt or, or in question. And when it is, you should be careful about whether you're reading an authentic article or tweak. However, the on-ramps and off-ramps to these networks, which are known as the exchanges like Coinbase, for example, uh, Less, you know, lesser known exchanges get hacked all the time because they can be as simple as someone's little WordPress website can basically front end one of these networks and try and help you convert your dollar into a Bitcoin. 
So be wary of the exchanges because they have a lot of security vulnerabilities, a lot of fraud tends to happen on the exchanges. But you know, uh, when you understand or trust the exchange, you should have very little worry about the integrity of the underlying network when it's a well-known and well-examined open source public ledger like Bitcoin. So could you talk a little bit about the integrity of, I, I don't know if you talked about it before, the integrity of, like how does the distributed ledger ensure the integrity other than the consensus protocol you talked about? Are that, there is, other that, that is how they do it. It's a consensus protocol. And, and let me, well, let me, let me tack onto that question, which is a follow-up question to an earlier statement. So if, if there's really only like 10 corporations uh, doing this, how do I know that one of these corporations isn't just, you know, that, that that I'm not storing my quote unquote distributed ledger literally all in one place because of the, the thing that you just said? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just a, you know, just like GameStop, it's really asking the mark market manipulation question, but for this kind of market versus that kind of market. And it's a completely legitimate question. It was, you know, top of mind in the design of something like the Bitcoin blockchain network and Ethereum and so forth. Um, and there's two websites uh, we can send, we can um, add links to if you want to at the end of this podcast. One of them is called crypto51.app. And the other one is called, I think you just have to Google it because it has a longer URL called Are We Decentralized? And those are essential resources, both academic and operational resources, because the mathematical concept here is that if you can obtain control of 51% of the nodes on the network, you own it. So if you compromise, you know, one of these one of these conglomerates, one of the 10 conglomerates, which is totally, you know, a, a risk model you have to factor in here, you've got maybe 10%, maybe 15% or so of the network. You have to compromise a number of these conglomerates to ultimately accumulate 51% of all the nodes. The technical term is called hash power on the network. And when you control 51% of the hash power on a public ledger in particular, like Bitcoin, then you control Bitcoin, you control the network. And as you can imagine, the incentive to do this is $600 billion every millisecond. So there's plenty of people trying. In reality though, the genius of the algorithm and the implementation being very decentralized, very um, open source, it's kind of the ultimate zero trust DevOps, DevSecOps project in the world. The, both the theory and the practice of this have become very sound and resistant to these kinds of attacks. Interesting. I, I, and I, I'm, I'm looking at the, it's, it's actually, are we decentralized yet? I believe is the phrase. Yeah, correct. And again, it used to be just that, that URL, but I guess, you know, there was oh, okay. only oh, it's Bitcoin era dot app is the, is the thing. I think, that I, I think that's the latest version of it. And there is an interesting, uh, timely connection to that. Uh-huh. Dogecoin has become a place where a lot of the wall street bets, traders have sort of gravitated towards to get around the traditional financial market restrictions on on you know pumping and dumping assets and dogecoin was co-created by uh, as a joke literally as the name by a gentleman called jackson palmer who was just a programmer who wanted to show how ridiculous the whole concept of blockchains and distributed ledgers were when they were actually tied to financial assets so he created dogecoin 
And he just did it very cleanly and academically in saying, you know, here's how you would create a proper distributed ledger as a public ledger. You'd have X levels of no of decentralization across X nodes. And and he created it as a cryptocurrency, literally as a joke. And he's totally, you know, uh, you know, at least, you know, claimed to have completely backed out of it and sold all of his, you know, tokens, if you will, crypto tokens. But it is the one that inspired this very useful resource of are we decentralized yet? Because that's the only known accounting, if you will, of these critical elements and details behind these public ledgers is, you know, what is a level of decentralization in terms of how many entities actually control the nodes? What would it take to compromise these nodes? Uh, all the all the critical columns you're seeing listed there so are really important questions to ask as you yeah. set up a governance model for a distributed ledger or blockchain. Yeah, so like Bitcoin, it says is at 19%. Uh, versus Stellar, which is 95%. So help me understand what that means. So let me actually bring that up because I haven't brought that up, but make sure I, I get all these column names in the proper context. So I'm bringing it up now and we're looking at which column in particular? Uh, the percentage of money supply held by top 100 accounts. Okay. So we talked about, yeah, Bitcoin. So you obviously want that to be as low as possible because that gotcha. implies not a concentration of power. Gotcha. 95 <laughs> sounds not low. 95%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Stellar again uh, is, you know, there's a, if, if I'm allowed to be, you know, if I'm allowed to curse, it's one of those categories of alternative coins known as shit coins which is okay. basically you know, not one of the top coins, but it's an alternative coin, if you will, to Bitcoin. Interestingly enough, it says miners are not incentivized in Stellar. Okay, so yeah, maybe there's, again, so with Stellar, it could be more of an enterprise. I don't use Stellar, so I'm not an expert in it. Right. But there are a lot of private ledgers, so we haven't even discussed Hyperledger, for example, and IBM's contribution, which is a, a project called Fabric, and Intel's contribution, which is a project called Sawtooth. VMware has... Um, a project called Concord, which they monetize using enterprise licensing as a VMware blockchain today. Samsung has a commercial product in this space. So there are plenty of, of non-public ledgers that are not tied to crypto tokens that we like in our security world. We want to dissociate with the hype and speculation of cryptocurrency that all they care about is decentralized integrity of cryptographic math. And, and yeah, the incentives are very different there because it's literally just you know, how do I maintain a network either, you know, across my resellers or across, you know, my federated administrators or my business partners in a supply chain context? How do I, mean, how do I maintain a network that has a low concentration of power, which is much easier said than done, and therefore can be trusted in terms of its integrity? And then what is this column, the per number of entities in control of greater than 50% of voting mining power? Which That's indicates... what I talked about. That's the fifty-one percent attack you want to avoid. That's the the hash power. But so that's not a percentage. It's just a number. Yeah. Oh, so that's number of. So that means that you know, if we look at, for example, Bitcoin with four. Yeah. There's now you know four conglomerates that own a lot of my crypto mining farms, Bitcoin mining farms that have you know the ability to try and take over the network, which is kind of scary. <laughs> very, very scary. You know, you want that number to be high. You want you want the other column you just mentioned, the percentage, to be very, very low. 
but you do want this number to be very, very high. And oh, you do? Here, here's one of the dirty secrets. Yeah, is you don't want numbers of entities that have anywhere near the control of 50% Oh. The voting and mining power. You want a very, right. very low number of those. I mean, sorry, you want a very high number of those because that's decentralized. Okay. So these two columns we're looking at here, the first two columns that are numeric, are inversely proportional. Right? You want one to be low. You want you want the first one to be as high as possible. Uh-huh. You want the highest number of entities, so aggregations of mining power conglomerates, you want the highest number of entities in a, uh, a ledger, because that implies no one of them can arbitrarily try and take over the whole thing. And then you want, you know, conversely, the concentration of power, therefore, to be as low as possible. Gotcha. And it, there does seem to be a correlation between low numbers in the one column and high percentages in the other column. Yeah, you know, it's not not perfectly linear, but there's absolutely right. an inverse correlation. Right. We, I, I think we've covered sort of what is a distributed ledger, why somebody would participate in it, what is mining, which apparently is. Be, <laughs> do you know why it's called mining? Uh, because it, you know, people did think of it. Not everyone, but some people did think of this as digital gold, and you oh, mine for gold, oh, so you mine for okay. it. Okay, but interesting. Yeah. Okay. Depiction shovels used to be an NVIDIA GPU, and now it's dedicated ASICs. The next conversation is just the application of this really interesting technology for strong integrity. So what do you do with this, Val? We'll talk about it in the next podcast. Excellent. And, you know, in secret to the listeners, we actually recorded this podcast after the other podcast because we recorded that one, and I was as confused as I was when I started. So... I wanted to, I want. I figured that might happen to some other people. So I thought we'd record this one before the other one, because it's not going to make sense if you listen to that one after this one, it's going to sound like we don't know what we're talking about because we didn't when we recorded that one. Um, <laughs> because I've got you on and because I think you might know the answer to this question. You know, I, I have a few people that I know that got into this world of being, of doing Bitcoin mining, right? But I, it sounds like, everything like like everything else it got very specialized and you had to have like you couldn't just put a regular computer online and mine bitcoin i mean you can but no you know it it doesn't really work because it, it becomes literally an arbitrage game between the efficiency of your processing power and a CPU never did this well a GPU for a short time like an Nvidia gaming card uh, did this okay but this quickly became an area of specialists where you would buy and you still today regularly upgrade these custom ASICs application, you know, silicon integrated, you know, I forget, you know, I forget what ASIC stands for now. I should know that. It's been too long. But these custom, this custom silicon that all it does is execute this particular mathematical function at, you know, the highest performance at the lowest, lowest power in unit. Lowest power and cooling cost. So basically, the average person can't afford. What is it? It's just that the average person can afford, but the average person. This is a full time job, right? So what right. you have to do is you have to look at the actual value of the the public ledger blockchain that you care about. So let's say Bitcoin, and when the value is above your capital cost to keep these ASICs up to date. And most importantly, your day-to-day, hour-to-hour power costs and cooling costs to run a whole basement of these things. When all that formula is positive, 
you turn your miner on and you start to mine coin and you get the financial incentives that outweigh your cost, your CapEx and OpEx. But when that very volatile cryptocurrency sometimes is, goes down, it's cheaper for you to just turn it off and wait. And so the, this, you know, this all adds to the, you know, just one of many variables that add to the relative complexity of this world. I just picture in my head that Curtis in his office is now just going to have racks and racks of ASICs that he's going to start mining with. Well, there was a time when I when I wondered about that. And then it just, it just, it just seemed too, I mean, I'm a hands-off investor as it is. Like I'm not a, I'm not a day trader. Like I don't want to deal with individual stocks. I'm not even, I'm not even in a fund. I'm in a meta fund, right? Like I, which like is, yeah, my, which is the smart thing to do when you don't want to make this your full-time job by far. Yeah. yeah. And that's so exactly this, it. You know, it's one thing to speculate in the futures of these things or speculate in just a token. It's a whole other level of responsibility to actively try and mine and, and understand when you're paying more to mine because the cost is less than your power than when you're actually making money mining. So what, one of our podcast guests, Christopher uh, Kuchek, uh, he's, yeah. he's yeah. definitely a, uh, a miner. Um, yeah, no, if, you, if you like this as a hobby or if you have the time for it, and again, uh, and, you, and you know how to apply this... Uh, you know your your knowledge, and you have the capex and opex. You can act. You know this is a this is kind of like you know being um, a landlord. You can have passive income if you're doing it all right. What what do you think the what do you think the possibility is that people are? I'll call it leveraging company resources to mine their own personal Bitcoin. <laughs> so those are called you know crypto mining viruses, trojans, etc., worms, and uh, a lot of it is happening surreptitiously inside organizations, but very much so inside their cloud instances, where they typically wouldn't see this until a month later when they get an outrageous bill. Uh, but uh, this happens all the time because now, for a while before ransomware, the most profitable way to exploit a victim in a cybercrime was just to use their CPU and GPU to mine your coin. Yeah, interesting. And, and that's way, crazy. Their, their power and cooling, right? That was a real thing is, you know, the, the PG&E bill went to them instead of you. And that was great. Gotcha. By the way, application specific integrated circuit. Yeah, yeah. I, I blanked on that. Thank you for that. I Well, I didn't know it at all. So, <laughs> so I, I, used to, I used to be my world. I used to, I used to work with storage silicon that did that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it shows what four years of being away from the storage <laughs> market will do to your brain. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's okay. All right, you well, got to fill your brain with other stuff. It's fine, Val. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, you know, despite the pain meds and the pain and my disfigured face, I think I made it through this relatively unharmed. All right. Well, um, so thanks. Thanks, Val, uh, for, uh, you know, talking to us, you know, people down south. My uh, pleasure. Uh, you asked all the right questions for the audiences we both care about. So I really enjoyed it. I think so. Thanks, Val. And thanks, Persona, for uh, asking great questions as well. I'm glad I wasn't the only idiot in the room this time. No, <laughs> definitely, definitely not for sure. All right. And thanks to the audience for uh, listening in and make sure to rate us at ratethispodcast.com and subscribe so that you can restore it all. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spade. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a 
chance to fix it Instead it's all jacked up See how I'll write on Facebook about you Don't underestimate the things that I will do There was a file but I deleted it Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space It'll be completely done Maybe one day it 